Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. The first time I met with Mitt Romney for this podcast was episode five, way back in 2015, when he was the former governor of Massachusetts, an immediate past standard bearer of the Republican Party. I sat down with him again yesterday for a live virtual podcast at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics under much different circumstances. Now the senator from Utah, Romney is a bit of an outcast in the party, Donald Trump's party for his willingness to do what many other Republicans won't, and that is take on the president. Romney talked about his fears about the final days of the Trump administration, his hopes for the future, and the example another maverick Republican, his father, George Romney, set for him as he navigates these turbulent times. And one note for our listeners, we're taking Thanksgiving week off. However the virus allows you to celebrate, I wish you and yours the best, and look forward to better times and more conversations in the future. Now, my conversation with Senator Romney. Senator Romney, good to see you again. You know, the last time that we sat down, you were Governor Romney, and it occurred to me as uh, you were waiting to take some votes before we started this conversation there's a really big difference between being a governor and a senator. And I always wondered, having been a manager, having run things, having been an executive, how this all would sit with you. Um, because now you're one of a hundred. Your schedule is at the mercy of someone else. How, how's it going? Uh, I enjoy the job, but it is a very different job. There's no question about that from being an executive in the business world to uh uh, helping organize the Olympics and then having served as a governor. Uh, but I've had uh, different jobs over my career. Uh, I started at the bottom. Uh, I worked as a consultant for a number of years where you're not able to uh, basically do anything. You're hoping to convince other people <laughs> that they should take action. So there's a bit of that in the Senate. I think the most uh, frustrating part of the job is that uh, over the years, the Senate has moved and moved to a point where I think there's a reluctance to vote on things that might be bad votes for members of the majority's party. So as a result, we don't vote in very much, not either up or down, things we agree with, but if it's bad for X, Y, or Z, Senator, why then? Uh, then we don't want to take that vote. So we vote very rarely on matters of substance. And just as a particular, I think in the two years I've been in the Senate, we haven't had a single vote on a matter relating to health care immigration, tax policy, climate change, and the list goes on. So it's- yeah, um, as long as it's nothing important, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, one of the frustrations that people have is they look at Washington and they see parties positioning themselves uh, to advantage themselves for the next election, 
more than working together to try and solve problems. And we're in a particular moment right now. We're 16 days after an election. I, I remember I was in the room in 2012 when you called President Obama to concede uh, the election. And four years later, Hillary Clinton called uh, Donald Trump uh, a few hours after the polls closed uh, in the early morning hours of the next day. And the transition began almost immediately. Here we are 16 days later, and we're in a state of suspended animation. And it's, it has consequences, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. Uh, you know, I think uh, both here and around the world, uh, we are uh, seeing a reduction in the confidence we have in voting. And if people don't believe in voting and don't have confidence in voting, how can you have democracy? Because democracy is fundamentally based upon people voting. And if the United States of America uh, doesn't believe uh, that we have voting that's, uh, that's reliable, why? how can you expect a, a country that's just becoming a democracy to adopt this practice uh, and, and use it as the basis for determining its future? So, yeah, this has, this has consequence here and it's consequence around the world. And we care about the world because uh, we, are, we are more prosperous as a nation and more able to enjoy peace if the world we trade with is prosperous and enjoying peace. So, uh, you know, we're part of a, of a global system, whether we want to admit it or not, uh, America's success and, and America's prosperity and, and safety is related to what's happening in the world. A little bit later, I want to talk about that because those principles are very much, you know, in contention uh, in our politics uh, today. But just this morning, there was a Reuters poll that said 52 percent of Republicans uh, felt that the election was rigged and that uh, Trump was the rightful winner of the election. And that's a consequence of what the president himself has been saying right up until uh, this moment. And uh, that that has consequences as well. If you're Joe Biden coming into office um, and a significant number of people in the country feel like you're not legitimate, that makes governing more difficult, does it not? Well, I, I would presume it makes it more difficult for a president to u- unite the country if, if a large segment of the country feels that someone is illegitimate and has stolen something, why they're not likely to uh, reward uh, this individual with their trust. And if you don't trust the person who's the president of the United States when he or she uh, asks us to come together for some greater purpose, why that means that we would not be able to do so. I mean, the idea was united we stand. And uh, and so when when President-elect Biden said he wants to bring the country together, uh, obviously that's a much more difficult task if many people feel he is not the legitimate president. Yeah. Isn't that part of what the president is doing, though? Isn't, isn't it a little bit subversive? Uh, I'm sure that you didn't. Um, it wasn't the greatest moment of your life when you had to pick up that phone and, and concede an election. Uh, but um, there are responsibilities here, uh, one of which is to see to it that there's a transition, which there is not right now. Uh, how much does that worry you, the fact that um, there is no presidential daily briefing, national security briefing for Biden, the fact that the coronavirus teams are not uh, coordinated, the fact that you guys are going to have to you're going to have to vote on nominations of the president's uh, appointees. Uh, but the FBI background checks of these appointees can't begin because there's no formal 
transition process because the president won't allow it to move forward. Yeah, I, I do believe there there will be gaps, um, and uh, and that's unfortunate and unnecessary. It means people won't be able to get underway as quickly as they otherwise uh, would have. Um, I'm uh, uh, I'm convinced, however, that in many cases the um, the people that are managing, for instance, the distribution of the vaccine will stay in place and they will uh, carry on. Uh, and, and likewise, in other agencies of our government, there will be a continuation that that will not be significantly impacted by the lack of a, a, a formal transition. But I, I must admit that in this intervening period, I'm, I'm more concerned about the actions the president is taking uh, that relate to, uh, for instance, the firing of, of Chris Krebs, uh, who was responsible for overseeing the cybersecurity of our government systems. This is a guy who came from Microsoft. Uh, uh, you know, to attract someone like this for a fraction of the pay he was getting before, that, that's quite an accomplishment. So he, you know, he, he has been guarding our systems to fire him in the uh, in this this end of term is really a very dangerous thing, not to mention what happens with regards to the Secretary of Defense, uh, decisions with regards to troops in Afghanistan. Yeah. The, these kinds of, of, of items happening at the very end of the president's term, those give me even more concern than the, uh, the, the gaps that may exist as a result of delayed transition. Yeah, we should point out that Krebs was fired after asserting that the election was was free and fair and not uh, tampered with, uh, which is important information for the American people because of what you said earlier, because people need to have confidence uh, in the election. The president took umbrage uh, that he said that. You know, I had John Bolton uh, on this uh, podcast um, not long ago, and before the election. And he said his concern was less about what the president would do between when we were speaking in the election and what he would do after the election to the inauguration. And he forecast firings, uh, perhaps uh, military decisions and interventions uh, that would be unwise. Um, So we are there now. Uh, The president apparently was contemplating uh, with his aides, the possibility of an attack on Iran. Uh, I was in the Situation Room uh, and heard briefings about what, you know, about because these topics come up all the time. You know, th- there are great consequences to these kinds of decisions. And not only is is he making them in a vacuum with a new team, apparently, but the incoming president doesn't is not read into any of these situations. It, it seems very perilous. You know, I can't disagree with you. I must admit that I think this president has tended during his entire term and his campaign campaigns, actually, to uh, to break norms, if you will. And frankly, that's one of the things some people like about him is that he doesn't do what is expected and he doesn't play by the rules uh, that we've played by for a couple hundred years plus. But I, I hope that we, we recognize as a uh, citizenry that some of these norms were established by the founders and by those that followed them, recognizing that they had significant impact and purpose. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I've spoken with some people outside our country and they're, they're alarmed because they, they wonder, can we trust America? And I think it's understandable that when they see practices that normally have been 
employed by uh, the chief executive being uh, pushed aside, they wonder what's going to happen. So, for instance, the decision to to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, we have some 40 uh, coalition members that also have troops there. For us to pull our troops out obviously puts our remaining troops in some danger as well as their troops. And they wonder, how, how do we deal in a coalition with the United States leading it if there is a decision taken on a precipitous basis with which we may or may not have been familiar uh, that puts our troops in jeopardy. So it's it's uh, the consequences of what's happening during this lamed up period, uh, I think, are m- potentially more severe than the consequences associated with a uh, a late transition process. First of all, is there any recourse for the Congress to rein in some of the president's excesses in this period? And secondly, is there the will? Because a lot of your colleagues don't want to acknowledge or haven't yet acknowledged, at least publicly, uh, that the election's over. There's a timidity about taking the president on. Well, and I think also the fact that there's a, um, a Senate race in Georgia, which will determine uh, who's the majority leader and who are the chairs of all the committees and who instead are minor- the minority leader and the ranking members of these committees. That has enormous consequence. And and uh, President Trump could have a quite substantial impact on that election, either by uh, disparaging uh, the process in some way, uh, or by uh, uh, supporting it and encouraging people to come out and vote for the Republican candidates. So um, irritating the president may not be uh, a, a uh, <laughs> an easy decision for yeah. people that are concerned about that outcome. Yeah, there, there, but you can speak for, to this from a very personal standpoint. You, you cast maybe the most difficult vote anyone can cast uh, on the question of impeachment. And you voted for conviction, stood alone. And I, I just was wondering what the experience was like and what happened when you went home and when you, when you traveled around. And because the president, it's very costly to take this president on. He, he, um, he's not nuanced in his response. Yeah, I, I, I've been called a lot of names over the years, and I don't give that a lot of concern. Um, uh, I, I can tell you that. Uh, my, my biggest concern was making sure that, that what I was doing was right. Um, and uh, I don't think people all understand, but when we sit as a jury in an impeachment trial, we are sworn a new oath, or we swear a new oath, rather, and, and it is to act as a juror, if you will, to find a, a truth or an untruth. And, and so I took that responsibility very seriously. I did not want to be in that position. I did not want to be in a trial to convict or not convict the president uh, and the leader of my party. But I was thrust into that position. I took it seriously and reached the conclusion I felt was right. I must admit, I was anxious about making sure I was making the right decision. That was the hardest part. And and gathering the information, putting together my own timeline uh, to make sure that I had all the facts uh, uh, laid out in a way that, that was leading to, the, uh, to one conclusion or the other. Once I de- determined that there, he was, in fact, guilty, as had been alleged by the House. Uh, then the decision was relatively straightforward and the stress was reduced. Now, I'm happy to report that that while I expected to be perhaps shunned by some. Well, some people talked about censuring you in back in Utah. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, the legislature looked at a vote to censure me or to actually try and remove me. There was an effort to say, will they remove me? So I I, I realize there are very significant political consequences. I'm not terribly popular with my party uh, in the state of Utah. 
And uh, that's where I've got to run a primary and got to get reelected if I choose to run again. So, uh, but that consequence is nowhere near as great as the consequence of violating your own conscience. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I will say I, I was pleased that I got a call from John Cornyn shortly after the vote. And he said, Mid, I want you to know, I would not want to pee, be part of a group uh, that was uh, angry at someone because they voted their conscience. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, Mitch McConnell likewise called me and, and, and offered a, same, a similar message, uh, which was that, that uh, I should feel welcome in the caucus, uh, that, that he and others respect people who vote their conscience. And I believe my colleagues did the same. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You're a kind of unique figure in many different ways in the Senate, one of which is you're you're sort of an institution in your state. It's clear that, you know, you're not you're not there as you know as a careerist uh in the senate um but i always and and you know you cast an incredibly uh, courageous vote i'm always reminding people though there's a reason why profiles encourage with such a slim volume uh <laughs> it's not the usual thing because part of being a politician is getting elected and um you know we saw just over the weekend Mike DeWine, uh, the governor of Ohio, made a relatively benign comment that, you know, Biden is the president-elect. And uh, the president immediately tweeted about finding a primary opponent for him uh, in Ohio. And the president leverages a lot of weight in the Republican Party. So these are kind of career decisions uh, for some of your colleagues. Isn't that a big part of, uh, in addition to Georgia, isn't that a big part of this? Uh, there's, there's no question, but that part of the calculation anyone makes uh, with regards to uh, votes and uh, and what they say publicly, particularly what they say publicly and what they respond to and what they sort of let slide, has to be uh, uh, whether uh, they might be replaced by someone who would be a, a, a lot less uh, capable uh, and, uh, uh, and less likely to follow their conscience than themselves. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I can't ascribe that to any particular individual or to all my colleagues as a group. I believe they each follow their conscience. But but uh, but certainly if one looks at, at, at some of the primaries, you might say, oh, my goodness, I, I can't allow myself to get beat by that person because that would make our country you know, be put in a far weaker position. But you must in your private conversations, most of them must understand that the election's over, right? I think without question, people understand the election is over and they realize the president has a right to call for recounts and to pursue legal remedies. But at this stage, we haven't heard any evidence of a widespread voter fraud effort that would result in a a change of the outcome of the election. No one's presented that uh, that I know of. And of course, we're all watching with great interest. The entire country is. So at this stage, I think it appears to be a foregone conclusion. I mean, the the place where the allegations are being made is mostly in the president's Twitter feed, uh, which goes to the point you made earlier about the corrosive effect of that. Putin and uh, those, who, you know, our adversaries around the world who want to undermine American democracy, they must relish that. 
I'm surprised that, that there as many people, as you say, that give it credibility, even within our own country, um, because the president said before the election that if he were to lose, it would be because of voter fraud, it would be because of corruption. Uh, and then on uh, a day or two after the election, when the vote was called by the major networks, uh, he indicated that there was massive fraud and that he had been robbed uh, of the victory. Uh, and that was before there was any evidence that had been gathered. So it, it's one thing to charge a crime uh, before you actually see any evidence. Normally you find evidence, and then after seeing evidence, then you reach a conclusion about no. whether or not there was a crime committed. But but you know, I, I understand the president is not happy with the result. He's entitled to pursue his legal remedies. Um, but uh, but I think in all likelihood, uh, it, it's it's pretty clear that uh, that that, he, that uh, uh, Joe Biden will become the next president. The one thing, and you've said it, uh, and I agree with you that he's not going away. Um, he's not one to uh, to sort of retire to Mar-a-Lago and silently consider his place in history. And he's, you know, apparently he's going to move his act down to Newsmax or somewhere. Uh, makes clear he's going to be active in politics. Leadership pack maybe run again. How does that likely to affect? the ability to find pathways for cooperation when a new president takes office? Well, I think it really affects what's going to happen within my party. And it's very hard for me to predict, obviously, accurately what the president is actually going to do uh, and what influence he will have on the party. My my guess is he'll have a lot of influence uh, over primaries and over the, the party's policy going forward. But he may not. I see other people who predict that he will, uh, you know, play a lot more golf and and let bygones be bygones. I don't think that's in his nature. No, uh, myself. So I think he'll continue to have a big big impact. Uh, I I don't think he'll have a significant impact on legislation, and I may be wrong in that regard. Whether he continues to play a role in in uh, in supporting or opposing legislation that comes forward, I I I don't know whether that's uh, something he will. Uh, will find interesting and compelling. Uh, you know, that's not been, that's not really been his modus operandi as a president. It's not that he comes up to the Hill and works on a piece of legislation or lays out a healthcare plan or an immigration plan. I mean, he, you know, he, he puts out various trial balloons to see how people react. Uh, but I, I don't know that he's, he's likely to have a big influence on, on the legislative uh, uh not only the legislative agenda, but the legislative accomplishment uh, of Congress. He does weaponize these issues where he thinks that they can benefit him and he uses them uh, to divide. And that would be uh, a concern if if cooperation becomes uh, a test of uh, of loyalty. Let me ask you about this virus. Um, you know, when I asked you before about being a governor versus being a a senator, uh, I'm sure you think from time to time, if I were a governor, what would I be doing now? Or if I were the executive, if I were president, what would I be doing uh, now? What 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 should we have been doing or what should we be doing? Well, going back to the uh, the origins of the of the disease, um, it, it is my belief, and obviously other people don't agree with me, but it's my belief that, that in order to maintain the, the confidence and trust of the public, that it's important to level with the public uh, from the very beginning so that you maintain credibility. And therefore, when you ask the public to do something hard, they know that you're shooting straight. And apparently the president took a different point of view, which was that 
he didn't want to scare people. So even though he knew this was going to be serious and resulted in a lot of deaths, he was he was going to minimize it initially. I, I think that meant that he lost credibility. Uh, I, I also believe that from an organizational standpoint, that it was uh, a, a more appropriate approach, a more effective approach to respond the way I've watched other leaders respond when there's a crisis of some kind, which is to pull uh, to pull in power to make executive decisions, and in this case, to have the federal government lay out a plan for distributing uh, PPE, uh, for distributing uh, medicines, for uh, all, all of the, the functions that, that states are really not well equipped to carry out without a, a coordinated national policy. Uh, and at this stage, it looks like we're moving in that direction. Uh, it, it looks like it, and I, I think you have to uh, uh, tip the, the president and Congress's hand and say, well done for the the, the warp speed mm-hmm. uh, development of vaccine. Basically, that idea was we're going to we're going to pay up front pharmaceutical companies for uh, for vaccines, which may or may not work. So they'll spend the money necessary to test them and to manufacture them. And uh, and so that that looks like that that's been a good approach from what, what we can tell. And uh, and as, uh, as as I can see from the outside, being organized relatively well to get this vaccine out into the states and to get it distributed to individuals. But there's a lot of work to, to happen between now and then. And one of the things we need to do is get funding to states to make sure they have the resources to do the distribution uh, and the inoculations that people are going to need. It looks like we're entering a really dire stretch here before the light at the end of the tunnel when the vaccine arrives and is distributed. I mean, we see just horrific statistics and stories from around the country right now and real pa- uh, panic on the part of medical administrators about the capacity of the healthcare system. So we're sort of back to where we were at the worst part of this and maybe worse. Um, how, do you think that Congress can, will come together here on a stimulus plan and how how important do you think it is that they do right now? Well, I, I actually wish that we could have an immediate uh, passage of a, uh, a, a vaccine distribution uh, program uh, that allows us to provide funding to states so they can be in a place to get the vaccine out as quickly as possible. I'd do that right, right away. But if we have to wait to put together a grant package, an omnibus package of some kind, which is entirely possible, and by the way, this may be connected to an omnibus budget bill, uh, oftentimes things move, as you know, in yeah. large bundles. Right. Uh, and, and that may be the way to get things across the finish line. But um, I, I believe that we're not far apart on a whole host of areas relating to a, a, a next uh, a COVID relief package. So I think we're not far apart with regards to the PPP program for small businesses. Uh, with regards to unemployment insurance, I think we're close. Uh, funding for hospitals and, uh, and and education institutions were very close. Uh, providing support for airlines, perhaps for transit as well, I think we're close. The place where we're further apart uh, relates to should we uh, devote hundreds of billions of dollars uh, for states and localities? And I think one of the reasons you're seeing such a gap there is that you're finding senators from some states, like my state, where they say, we don't need any additional money. We're doing just fine. We have a rainy day fund that's going to meet our shortfall. That's why we have a rainy day fund. So you don't need to send us more money. Uh, and and so you have other states that say, oh, boy, we've got a huge problem. You've got to give us money or we're going to have to start laying off people. So you've got very different perspectives of different senators. 
And uh, so coming together on that front may, uh, may, may be more difficult. And I think that's why it's been so hard to reach an agreement so far, which is not so much what's the scale of the, uh, of the relief going to be as to where the money is going to go. And, and a number of people, uh, Republicans in my caucus, feel that this is an effort on the part of the Democrats to get money to New York and California and Illinois and other states that have massive uh, pension liabilities. Uh, it's a, a way to solve their problems. And, and the other states that don't have those problems say, no, 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 that's not fair. So we're still far apart on the state Isn't side. Isn't that, but, uh, just put your governor hat on for a second. States have had extraordinary outlays as a result of this virus and depressed revenues now for eight months or more. It's, it's about to get worse. The, these are real problems for the states and localities. They're not uh, I mean, they may be different in severity from place to place, but it seems like a a, a national problem that is is a result of this. Uh, you know, pension notwithstanding, these are burdens uh, on these states and communities, um, are they not? And, and they are. And the the first COVID bill, as you know, uh, provided 150 billion dollars to states and localities. It was directed to have. Uh, a reimbursement fund for their out-of-pocket expenses associated with responding to COVID. Uh, and and a good portion of that money has not been taken up yet because the, the costs of uh, treating COVID uh, at the state level were not as great as might have been anticipated. But the other portion that you described is a gap in revenue. And, uh, and states say, hey, we'd like the federal government to make up for that gap in revenue. And that's the point I was making in that there are a number of states represented by Republicans, not all of them, obviously, but by a number of Republicans, particularly in the Intermountain West and, and, and the North Central portions of the country, where the states are doing fine in revenue and where they have a very small gap. Uh, and so they're saying, gee, why should we be part of a borrowing program to help those states that are, uh, uh, they feel mismanaged? Now, I, 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 I'm not going to get into the, the, the argument that they make. Uh, I happen to agree that uh, that, that a revenue gap is very different than a spending problem. Uh, but uh, uh, there are a number of proposals that are going around. I think uh, Governor Baker of Massachusetts has suggested that perhaps we should uh, increase the amount of federal funding on Medicaid, and that would free up funds for states to be able to meet their needs. Uh, I've suggested another alternative, which is to have the states and localities uh, apply for, for relief in the same way the PPP program did, which is if you had a substantial gap in your revenue, come provide that to the Treasury Department and the federal government will make up, let's say, 50 percent or 60 percent or whatever the number might be of that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the states that have a, a gap would come in asking for those funds. So there are ideas out there. Hopefully we can bridge the divide and get something done before the end of the year. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Why has mask wearing been become such a political uh, issue? I, I understand people's frustration. I'm sure you hear it all the time about the limitations that the virus has placed on their ability to make a living and so on. I'm struck all the time that we can, most of us can do, uh, who, who are opining on this, do it from the comfort of our own homes. And a lot of people 
don't have that luxury. And a lot of people are living from paycheck to paycheck are under enormous pressure uh, because of this. But mask wearing seems like a very sensible way to try and reduce the exposure. We know that it works. Um, why has it become such an emblem uh, for, for particularly for conservatives, uh, you know, over this, this last many months? And to be truthful, David, it's beyond me. I simply can't imagine uh, why there have been people, primarily in my party, that have politicized wearing masks. It just doesn't make sense to me. Because the, the president, for instance, his best chance of getting reelected was for the COVID crisis to be behind us and for the economy to be you know, doing superbly well. The only real effective tool he had was to get people to all wear masks. And yet, by his own actions, he made it seem like that was not a, 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 a politically appropriate thing to do in some cases. And uh, so he was, in some respects, working counter-purpose. Uh, and, and, of course, the health consequence uh, could be enormous. You know, it, it's true that there's no, there's no one uh, action that we can take that stops COVID-19. I think someone has described it as a, a, a series of slices of Swiss cheese, which is there are holes through all the vehicles we have to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Masks are not 100 percent effective. Uh, social distancing is certainly not 100 percent effective. Uh, and, and the list goes on. And the vaccine will not be 100 percent effective. But if you do all of them, if you take all of those steps, why then you really do dramatically reduce the likelihood that you're going to get COVID-19 and you reduce the the, the spread that might occur by people receiving it. So I, 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 I you know, I, I can tell you that that the the new media, meaning social media, has has allowed for the spread of conspiracies that uh, that include wearing masks uh, will also, I'm sure, mean that some people won't get vaccinated yeah, because of the be conspiracies. Concern. Yeah, mm-hmm. conspiracies about vaccinate. I mean, there are all these conspiracies out there and. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes like a wildfire. People, for some reason, we have a natural tendency to want to believe that people who are expert, the people in charge, are really lying to us. And the only people that are telling us the truth are the neighbor down the street who has no expertise at all. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah. During the midst of this, we also had the George Floyd killing and the social justice marches and you joined one apparently sort of spontaneously and organically you 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 fell in with a group of evangelicals who were marching in Washington uh in one of these social justice marches uh black lives matter marches tell me about that how that came about and why you felt compelled to uh to join well i had actually it was a sunday i'd actually driven uh from New Hampshire, where I had been uh, that weekend. We have a home there. I'd driven down, and I got in, I don't know, 4 or 5 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, I heard that there was a, a group gathering outside the Capitol uh, to support the Black Lives Matter uh, message. And um, so I, I just walked over to the Capitol. It's very close to my home. Walked over to the Capitol and, uh, and was able to march with those people as they marched, marched from the Capitol to the White House. Uh, and um, it, it's pretty straightforward. For me, Black Lives Matter is a statement saying that we have a justice system and a law enforcement system which, from time to time, uh, uh, d- does not exercise uh, equal and fair justice. 
uh, and that that's, a, that's an important message. We want to make it very clear that law enforcement, uh, as well as other uh, parts of our uh, justice system, should be colorblind uh, and should not be discriminatory against people uh, of color. I happen to have a, an African-American grandson. I, uh, you know, I understand that there is so-called the talk where parents talk to a child about the discrimination that might exist because of the color of their skin. I don't know how this grandson of mine will be able to understand that and understand why is it that, that I will be treated differently than my siblings and than my cousins simply because my, the pigment of my skin is different. And, and I find that very troubling. Now, now, I know some people say, well, but how about the Black Lives Matter organization? Do you subscribe to their manifesto? It's like, well, I, I haven't even seen their manifesto. I, I don't worry about that organization. A lot of people try and take credit for movements. But the movement that draw, drew out millions of people here and around the world was a very simple movement, which is we want to see more racial justice. We want there to be less discrimination. We want to stand with our black friends to say, yeah, your lives do matter. You come by this uh, naturally. I, you and I have had this discussion before. I grew up as a young kid, and one of my political heroes was actually your dad, though I grew up in a Democratic family, because uh, he courageously stood up for civil rights in the 1960s as governor of Michigan. Uh, he participated in marches then. Uh, and I wonder uh, how much he was on your mind uh, during these marches. I also wonder how much he's been on your mind during some of these political battles that you fought, because your, your father was famously uh, at odds with the leadership of his own party at times, not just you know on civil rights, but other issues, um, and often stood alone. And I was wondering whether he plays on your mind as you make these decisions. There's no question but that who I am and, and what little courage I have uh, is the result to a large measure uh, of, of having watched my, my dad exercise courage of his own. Um, uh, people feel that, that, uh, that, uh, that what he did was courageous, uh, that what he did showed a, a degree of integrity. Uh, and those things, by the way, only have value if there's a cost associated with, with them, uh, with exercising them. And, um, and so I saw my dad uh, make decisions which were politically uh, uncomfortable and, uh, and which had consequence for him. But uh, I saw that and saw that he was happy and satisfied because of it. I remember one time uh, my, my wife and my dad were, were driving in Boston and the radio came on and said that Bob McNamara, formerly the Secretary yeah. of Defense under Lyndon Johnson, Bob McNamara had said that, in fact, he had lied uh, to the American people about the deaths in Vietnam and about the Vietnam War. And that came on the radio. And my, uh, my wife uh, turned to my dad, who had accused the Johnson administration of lying, and said, you know, uh, you know George, dad, uh, you know, doesn't that make you feel good? Do you, I mean, to hear that, he's finally admitted, because, by the way, McNamara had said about my dad, George Romney wouldn't know the truth if it hit him in the face. Yeah. We should point out for those who don't know the history that he spoke out against the war in 1967 and he was in the midst of p perhaps running for president. It cost him, you know, really basically cost him his political career. Uh, yeah, yeah. He served in the cabinet after that. But 
but that was it. And so that's the context in which you're telling the story. Yeah. So my, my, my wife said, you know, doesn't that make you feel good? And, and he turned to her and he said, I never look back. I only look forward. Why would I look back? It's very interesting. I mean, he, he was not troubled by the, the consequence of doing what he felt was right. And, uh, and I'm sure that that influenced uh, and influences how I think about my life. We're all influenced by our parents. And, and I, I have a, a picture of my dad um, marching in Detroit with, uh, for a civil rights cause. I don't know who the people are in the picture besides himself. There are a couple of people of color there, a number of people of color, a few others. And um, no question, uh, he was governor at the time. So he was at the front of the parade. And, and I recognized I'm not governor. Uh, in the in the march that we had in Washington, I was just back with all the other folks, which I was perfectly comfortable with. But I did think about him, and uh, and my my recollection is he marched more than once for civil rights, and uh, and that time for a Republican governor to be leading in civil rights was was more unusual than even it is today. I want to ask you real really quickly about um, the Supreme Court vote that you took for Justice Barrett. I, I'm one who's believes that if Democrats had the choice, had the option and were in, in that same position, probably would have wanted to move forward on that nomination, because as you have pointed out, that is within the authority of the president. The thing that outraged people, as you know, was that that wasn't the principle that was applied four years earlier when um, uh, Justice Gar- Judge Garland never got a hearing, President Obama's choice, for almost a full year after Justice Scalia died. It took 400 days to fill that seat. You can appreciate that sense of, I guess, hypocrisy, can't you? Oh, certainly. And, and, and certainly individuals, uh, you know, Susan Collins, for instance, she said, uh, she said that she uh, uh, would not support uh, Judge Garland because it was an election year. And she said, I think in August of this year, that she would not support a, a Trump nominee if it were to occur uh, during that year. And she was consistent with that in her in her vote. I, I hope that had I said similar things in the past, that I would have had the courage that Susan Collins demonstrated. Uh, I was, of course, not there at that time. But I understand why people uh, feel that uh, one argument was made at one time and it was not abided by it the second time. I came into the Senate, of course, not having made statements of that nature and looked at the very simple fact that the Constitution gives the president the right to make a nomination and the Senate to accept or reject, uh, that the Senate in the past, the senators, in my view, would have been a lot wiser just to say, you know, we'll give this man a hearing, but we're not planning on confirming him uh, because we want a person uh, that conforms to our political philosophy. That would have been a wiser thing to say because, of course, there have been many times, even during election years, when presidents have put forward a nominee, if, uh, if the Senate is not in their party's hands, why the nominee gets turned down. So that's not unusual. But the, the logic that was given at the time, I think, uh, uh, was not applied uh, in, the, in the current circumstance. And for those people, I think uh, they have to explain that. Yeah, it just uh, those things are among the things that erode people's confidence in these democratic institutions of ours. Uh, let me ask you, um, you've got a large beautiful family. Uh, how many grandkids do you have? 25. 25. Okay. So that's a baseball team right there. Are you, uh, are, what, what are you thinking about Thanksgiving? Everybody's worried about what they should do on Thanksgiving. Are you going to be able to get together with your family? Are you going to forego that? Have you had those discussions? 
Uh, we've had those discussions and we are all being very careful. Uh, we recognize that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's a vaccine light. And it would be foolish for us to take um, uh, relaxation of, 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 of the efforts we've been carrying out for these past many months uh, and to get COVID now. Uh, I have uh, a son uh, who actually had COVID. He had a, uh, his daughter came home from high school with it. They didn't know she had it. It spread through his family. So my son, his wife, and all of mm -hmm. his children got it. So we'll be having Thanksgiving dinner with them <laughs> because mm -hmm. they've all had it. They can't give it to us. We can't give it to them. Uh, but that's the only uh, son will be and, and group of grandkids will be having uh, Thanksgiving dinner with. So we're, we're staying safe, David. Hope you do too. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, listen, we're agonized about it, but totally, you got to take the long view here. I just want to say before we go, something that I say behind your back, which is this. I, I played some small role in thwarting your campaign in 2012. And eight months later, you invited my wife, Susan, and me to come and talk to a group of your um, supporters uh, at a conference, not about politics, but about epilepsy, which has plagued my daughter's life. And um, we got a wonderful reception, great support, but it also told me something about you and your humanity. And um, I like to tell that story because it's so important in politics to remember that even if we have different views, we share a common humanity and we have to see that in each other. But for someone who had run for president to invite the strategist for the other guy to come and talk was moving to me, gave me hope and um, and deep appreciation for you as a person. So I wanted to take the opportunity to say that to you because I do say it behind your back. I want to say it in front of you. <laughs> Thank you, David. You're you're very kind. And, uh, you know, I, I have learned that people who who are my political adversaries, uh, nevertheless, uh, without exception so far, are people who love the country like I do and and want to see a future for the American people just like I want to see. And and so while we're in competition with one another, we can we can be ferocious and, and aggressive and, and, and use our our full energy. But we're on the we're, we're fighting for the same purpose uh, when all is said and done. And, uh, you know, I, I you know, I ran against Ted Kennedy once. Uh, I disagreed with him on a whole host of policies, but we worked together when I became governor. We became collaborators on my health care plan and on several other economic development initiatives, uh, and we became friends. Uh, so, uh, you know, we should those of us who disagree with one another should spend more time listening to one another and establishing the kind of rapport that allows us to learn from one another. And uh, I appreciate the, the chance I've had to learn from you, uh, not just in our, our meeting in, in Utah, but also uh, watching you on a CNN on election night and the next day and the next day. <laughs> <laughs> election week, we call it now. Yeah, election uh, week, that was no, I, most I, informative. I, I appreciate it. Well, I, I hope that the ideal that you lay out is one that survives this particularly ugly period in our history and survives the onslaught of social media and disinformation and because at the end of the day democracy kind of relies on that and the ability to find ways to move forward together even when we disagree uh on maybe many other things uh and to uh 
and to respect each other as 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 human beings. So uh, for that reason and many others, I'm so appreciative that you're here today. Thanks, Senator Romney. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.